Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible or a phone or a tablet or something with a Bible on it, then if you would turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that's where we will be this morning. And, uh, and as you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit of a story about uh, someone that did announcements for us today, Jared Lawson, the newest staff member here at, uh, at Parkway. We hired Jared to be our pastoral resident. That's actually his uh, title, pastoral resident. Uh, short term, that means that he's just another staff member here. He does staff stuff. Whatever it is that staff does, he does. And uh, in particular, he's going to be helping oversee youth. But long term, the vision, the hope, the goal is for him to be our first church planner. And, uh, and so we would like to send some money and some people and go and plant another church. And uh, so we're not about the name and renown of Parkway. We're about the kingdom. And so we want to plant other churches. That's part of the hope and goal. I've known Jared for uh, about five years or so and uh, actually met him because he was an intern at my previous church. And, uh, and so don't tell him I said this, uh, even though he's in this room, but I immediately liked him. All right. He's a good looking kid. Uh, he likes sports, he likes the Aggies, he loves Jesus, and so I liked him. But in my conversations with him in those early days, I realized that his appetite, his palate, was rather undeveloped, uncultivated, rather immature. Uh, what I mean by that is he ate the same things over and over and over and over again, and he never tried uh, anything new. And, uh, and so I realized this for the first time whenever I was having a conversation and I mentioned queso, and he said, what's that? Now, his wife is from Norway, so if she would have asked that question, I would have thought, you know what, that's reasonable. She's from Norway. But Jared is from Texas, all right? And if you're from Texas, you should know what queso is. It's kind of like saying, I've never eaten at Whataburger. I don't know what the Alamo is. I've never heard of Chuck Norris or Nolan Ryan or something like that. And so uh, we made fun of him for not knowing what queso is, but we also loved him and wanted to disciple him. And so we took him for some authentic novelty Tex-Mex at Chewy's. And so we go to Chewy's, a group of us, uh, Zach, myself, uh, and another guy, and we go to Chewy's and uh, we're there He's tasting queso. He's repenting of never tasting queso uh, before. And uh, the, <coughs> excuse me, the waiter walks by and he's carrying a, 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 a tray of fajitas. And Jared said, what's that? We said, fajitas, weirdo. Like where in, the, you grew up in this bubble. And so he says, mm, that looks good. I'll have some. And, uh, and so the, the waiter comes to our table. Everyone else orders. And then every eye turns to Jared for this momentous occasion when he orders fajitas and he says, I'll have the, and then he pauses and you can tell this look of terror, panic sets in as he has completely forgotten the word fajitas and he's searching for an answer. And so there's this, this awkward for Jared, awesome for us silence. And he turns to the table and he said, what's it called? And I immediately shout out, don't tell him. I want to just have him work it out. So I said, you got this, man. You can work this out on your own. And, uh, and so he just kind of uh, sits there in silence for a second, and he said, I'll have the steaming plate of meat. <laughs> <laughs> and without missing a beat, the waiter said, sir, it's not that kind of restaurant. <laughs> now, the reason I share that story is, number one, because he's on staff now, and we just make fun of each other. That's, that's our love language. The second reason is because that kind of exemplifies an aspect of our text this morning. 
that, uh, so I am this, uh, this evangelist for Tex-Mex. I love Tex-Mex. I have tasted and seen that Tex-Mex is good. I love fajitas, I love queso, I love tacos, I love enchiladas, all of these sorts of things. And so as a result of the fact that I have tasted and seen that these things are good, I want to tell others about the glories of Tex-Mex. I want others to experience it as well. I want to see the joy in someone's eyes as they taste queso for the first time. And, uh, and so I'm an apologist for queso. Well, that's kind of what we see in this text. John, uh, we're, we're taking uh, 1 John as being written by the Apostle John. And so John has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so he wants others to experience what he has experienced. And so he writes this, as we'll see in verse 4, he writes this in order that others would enter into the joy that he himself has experienced. So I want to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll taste this text uh, together. As I often do, I want to ask you just to begin by praying for yourself. If the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, that you wouldn't be distracted by kids or thoughts of lunch or work or whatever it might be. <coughs> and then next, would you pray for those around you? Strangers, family, friends, whoever it might be, that the Lord would give us a collective love for His Word, desire to respond to it. And would you pray for me, for boldness, for faithfulness to the text, and also I've had a little cough over the past couple of days. So Father, I pray this morning that you would give us as a church body, this, uh, an insatiable hunger and thirst for your word, an insatiable hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ. And as an overflow of that faith and knowledge that you'd give us a zeal for obedience, for your word, and a sacrificial and tangible love for others. We pray these things because you are good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, before we get to the text itself, let's kind of remind ourselves of the context, some of the things that we've already seen in the first couple of verses. The first four verses of 1 John that we read in English are actually just one sentence in Greek. We've mentioned that before. We're breaking it up in order for us to highlight some particularly interesting and uh, informative and important uh, theological concepts. But doing so, when you break it up like that, it can kind of make it difficult to see the overall flow. And so I want to read uh, verses 1 through 4 and then kind of give a summary of that so that we can see where we are in the context. So 1 John 1, 1 through 4 reads as follows. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And let me summarize that for you. We gave this summary a couple of weeks ago so that you can kind of get the overall flow of the text. Uh, John has kind of written it in a poetic way, and, uh, and so I want to kind of uh, make it a little bit more literal for us to read. So this is the summary, what John is saying. We declare to you what was from the beginning, which we have witnessed by seeing, hearing, and touching 
so that you may have fellowship with us as we fellowship with God and so that our joy may be complete. And to this point in the text, over the past couple of verses, we have considered the importance, the role of eyewitness testimony. Uh, We have considered the necessity of God revealing Himself to us that we cannot innately, naturally sense Him. He must reveal Himself to us. We've considered the importance of the incarnation and the glories of Christology and Trinitarianism. These are the, some of the things that we've talked about, and we'll see hints of each of these as we continue on in the prologue this morning. So let's turn our attention to verses 3 through 4. Verse, uh, verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I want to begin by asking this question What is he talking about here? Who or what is that which we have seen and heard? You see that at the beginning of the the, uh, verse there? That which we have seen and heard. So who or what is that? To answer that, we have to reach back into the context where he's already actually answered that question for us. So look back at verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. You see that same language, seen and heard seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Notice what he says, concerning the word of life. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So what is John talking about? What is that which can be seen and or that which we have seen and heard in verse 3? Well, the answer is the word of life, the eternal life, the life. What's that? Well, according to verses 1 through 2, as we walk through this, we saw that the word of life refers to the person, the word, and the work of Jesus Christ. Those things are all inseparable. Those are indivisible in John's theology. And so the person, the word, and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, of the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity is life. And therefore, as we talked about, He is the source of eternal life. He is for us what He is in Himself. He is the source of eternal life because He Himself is eternal life. So when John says, that which we have seen and heard, here at the beginning of verse 3, he means the person and work and word of Jesus Christ. And what about it? Well, he says, it has been seen and heard. Again, notice the importance of the incarnation. We've camped out on this over the past couple of weeks because this is a huge theme to the book of 1 John. The incarnation, that the, uh, the person and work of Jesus was seen, heard, and touched. There were hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection. We talked about this, that historicity may not matter to many of the world's religions. It's of utmost importance to Christianity. If Jesus wasn't actually incarnate, if he wasn't actually born of a virgin, if he didn't actually become a man, then he didn't actually die, and he wasn't actually resurrected, which means you aren't actually saved, and you're actually still condemned. So it's a big deal in John's theology that, uh, that the incarnation is true. Otherwise, we are still enslaved to sin and death and condemnation, and Christianity is absolutely, utterly worthless, futile, vain, of no value whatsoever to us. But if the incarnation is true, if the resurrection is true, then it's of utmost value. So again, as we've mentioned, one of the purposes of the book of 1 John is polemical. 
that is, that is written in a particular context as a warning and as an, uh, a kind of exposure of certain false teaching that was circulating within the church that uh, John is writing to. Now, we don't know historically what the, 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 the label of that false teaching was. All right, so if you're reading a commentary, you might read these big fancy terms like Gnosticism or Proto-Gnosticism or Serinthianism or Docetism. You don't need to know those words in order to understand 1 John. We know that there was some sort of a variant false teaching, heretical teaching that was circulating within the church. And so one of the reasons that John is writing this letter is to expose that false teaching. We don't know the exact heresy, but we know certain characteristics of it. Three uh, in particular that we've talked about already. The first one, that there was some sort of underlying Greek philosophical dualism. We talked about this before. Dualism is kind of the idea that uh, the material world, the physical world, that which you can touch, that which you can taste, that which you can see, that which you can hear, these kinds of things are inherently wicked. They're inherently evil. They're inherently bad. Whereas the spiritual world, the ethereal world is actually good. So the goal in Greek philosophical thought, based on uh, philosophers like Plato, uh, the goal is to escape from the prison of the body. You might have even heard that at some point uh, in your life. The goal is to escape from anything material, anything physical, because that's evil, that's wicked, that's bad. Well, you you can see how the incarnation is going to uh, contradict that. That Jesus doesn't actually in any sense become sinful in his incarnation, He doesn't become wicked, he doesn't become evil, and yet he joins himself to what is physical. So there's this Greek uh, philosophical dualism that uh, is exposed, and then related somehow to that theological error, there is also this this moral error in that these false teachers were somehow denying or distorting the importance of sanctification, the reality and residue of sin. We'll actually see that over the next couple of weeks, and we'll see that continue on as a pattern throughout the book, that one of the implications of theological error is that it bleeds into moral error. It it bleeds into this not taking sin seriously. And then a third consequence related somehow to the theological and the moral error was a social error, in that these false teachers were somehow denying the call for for brothers and sisters to love one another and to serve one another within the church. So again, you see this sort of overlap between theological and moral and social. Faith, obedience, and love. By the way, those are intentionally interrelated throughout Scripture. What you believe with your mind is intended to affect the heart, which then overflows to the way that you do things. The things that you do, the interests that you have. We often say that there's this biblical trajectory that you see where truth begins in the head, it then impacts the heart, which then affects the hand, which then affects the greater habitat. Head, heart, hands, habitat. So you can see how talking about that which we have seen and heard is this theological grenade into the underlying Greek philosophical dualism. This theological uh, grenade that he lobs at the false teaching by completely exposing the error and saying that the gospel message isn't just something that we get by some sort of secret divine insight. It's something which was seen and heard. Earlier he had said touched as well. In other words, the message has been incarnated in a man. The Word, to use the language of the gospel of John, the Word has been made flesh. 
Let's move on to the next phrase. He says, we proclaim also to to you. So the past couple of weeks, we've talked about the connection between the God-man and the gospel message. The personified word and the proclaimed word. There is no disconnect between the two. The word of life incarnated and the word of life inscripturated are indivisible, inseparable. Why are we here at Parkway so passionate about the Bible? Why do we love the Bible? Why do we preach the Bible? Why do we teach the Bible? Why do we trust the Bible? Why are we talking about the Bible? Why do I encourage you to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to memorize the Bible? Because the Bible is the only certain access we have to the person and word and works of Jesus Christ. We don't worship the Bible, but neither do we worship God apart from the Bible. So the author has witnessed the person and work of Jesus Christ, and so he proclaims it. You ever play the telephone game? Anybody here ever play the telephone game? You know what I'm talking about? Someone tells somebody something. There's this long line of friends. The first person whispers something to the second person. The second person whispers something to the third person. And on and on and on down the line until it gets to the end of the line. And then by the time it gets to the end of the line, the message is completely different. Sometimes it's just a result of the fact that things change along the way. Oftentimes it's because you have somebody in the middle who's not paying attention or they just intentionally mess it up. All right? Let's call that person Tim. Seems like something somebody named Tim uh, would do. Well, Scripture isn't like the telephone game. It's not something that simply was just kind of handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation, and then eventually someone wrote it down. First, it's inspired by the very Spirit of God. Second, we have access to direct access to eyewitness testimony. That's what's going on here. What was seen and heard and touched by real men was proclaimed and written for our edification and encouragement that we might believe what they have seen and heard and touched. I argued again in our first sermon that uh, the book of John was, uh, the book of First John was written by John or at least someone who is intimately connected to John. Well, John, the apostle, knew Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus. He suffered for Jesus. So what he proclaims is true and trustworthy. And when he proclaims it, he does so with authority and reliability. What was seen and heard in the Word of God incarnate is proclaimed in the Word of God inscripturated. Let's move to the next phrase in the verse. So that you too may have fellowship with us. This is the purpose of John's proclamation. He's writing so that his readers, and uh, by extension us as well, so that his readers may have fellowship with him. Now, in order to understand that, we need to understand what fellowship is and it isn't. Unfortunately, fellowship is one of these words that we might call Christianese, right? It's a word that uh, non-Christians don't really use all that time. They can't really define it. Unfortunately, it's also a word that Christians do use all the time and yet we can't define it, right? And so in case you don't speak Christianese, let me kind of translate for you. The word fellowship, when most Christians use it, basically just means hanging out, all right? And so if you're watching a game, if you're eating nachos, if you're quilting, whatever it is that you like to do, you just throw the word fellowship in front of it, all right? So let me translate a few of these. So if you ever uh, hear about kind of a uh, food and fellowship, it means organized gluttony. That's what food and fellowship mean. Potluck fellowship. That means uh, organized food poisoning, right? Fellowship of the rings. 
That's a Tolkien book or a uh, Peter Jackson film. So with that in mind, we use fellowship for all these different things. Most of them aren't actually fellowship. So I want you to forget everything that you think you know about the word fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, the Greek word is koinonia, and it's related to a Greek verb meaning to share in. That's kind of the underlying root idea, to share in, to participate in something uh, together. That's the basic meaning, a shared common participation in something. That's what fellowship is. That's what koinonia is. You know that most organizations are based on some sort of shared interest. For instance, Future Farmers of America, what do they share an interest in? Farming, right? That's not a difficult question. It's not a trick question or something like that. High school band, what's the shared interest? (laughs) Somebody yelled out geek stuff or something, I think. Uh, Music, right? Uh, Key club. I was the president of key club. I don't know what we celebrate. Keys or locks or something like that. I don't know. Uh, One time I was was playing softball in Denton on a softball team. And uh, in, in the middle of the game, we noticed off just to the side... Two guys came out wearing uh, chainmail armor, a full chainmail armor suit, and, uh, and they started yelling each other in olden English about the fact that one had besmirched the honor of the other, and then they uh, had this duel as part of their LARPing. You're familiar with LARPing? Live action role playing is what they were doing. So you see two shared interests in the same time. For me and my buddy, sports... For these uh, people in, uh, interested in LARPing, their shared interest is being weird or something like that. I don't, I don't really know what the point of that is. But biblical koinonia, biblical fellowship is, uh, is more than just shared interest. It's actually deeper than that. It's shared life. It's actually shared identity. That shared life and shared identity therefore overflows into shared interest, which then kind of overflows into shared intent or shared purposes. That's what koinonia is. That's what fellowship is. Shared identity, shared interests, and shared intents, or purposes, or goals. That's koinonia. That's fellowship. Let me give you an example of this sort of overlap between identity and interests and intent. Let's look at uh, Acts chapter 2. One of the best examples of this, just a short and succinct example of this idea of fellowship Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is immediately after the events of Pentecost. Uh, The the church is beginning to expand. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's fellowship. As people were being saved, as people were being born again, as people were being united to Christ, there is this shared identity. Shared identity as, as, as being those who share in the same spirit as those who are sons and daughters of the same God. And as an implication of that shared identity, there is also this shared interest. They're meeting each day. They're devoting themselves to listening to the Word and to worshiping. And their shared intent, shared purpose, shared goal as they collectively seek to love and serve each other. They're selling their goods and so forth. 
Next week, we'll really get to dive into the, uh, the implication of fellowship with each other. Our fellowship with each other and subsequent responsibility to love and serve one another is a huge theme in 1 John, but I want you to notice that's not actually the point of our text this morning. The point of our text this morning, again, that's the point of the text next week, and we'll see that. The point of the text this week, though, is not that we share in fellowship with with each other, but that John is writing so that we might have fellowship with him. The point of verse 3 is not fellowship with each other, but fellowship with the apostles and the apostolic tradition. I want you to notice why by looking at the next section, which says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why the apostle is so passionate that his readers might fellowship with him because he fellowships with God, with the true good God, with the triune God, with the Father and the Son. I don't know if parents still did uh, do this because everyone has a cell phone now, but whenever I was a kid, um, Parents used to kind of give a password or a phrase to their kids in case someone ever had to pick them up, all right? So anyone ever experienced this? Raise your, raise your hand. If you ever had your parents do this or you ever did that for uh, your kids or something like that. And so what you do is you give kind of a password, and then that way the kid, whenever someone said, hey, I'm coming to pick you up because your, your parents sent you, that way the kid would be able to say, okay, this is how I can verify this, whether or not there's actual stranger danger or a creeper beeper, as I like to say, or whether or not this is actually legit, and you're actually sitting here with the authority and, uh, and uh, validity of my parents. That's kind of what's happening here in this text. The apostle is in fellowship with God. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He's actually sent by him. That's what the word apostle means, one who is sent. He is sent by him, which means that he's trustworthy. And if we follow him, he will lead us to the Father. So there's this code, if you will, that the apostles give. It's this theological, moral, and social code that we've talked about. We'll see it over and over and over again. Faith, obedience, and love. Again, we'll see that over and over as we move throughout the book. So this phrase here, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, grounds the previous phrase about fellowship with the apostle. What good is it to say, I have fellowship with the apostle, unless the apostle has fellowship with the triune creator God. And by the way, as an implication of this, if you don't have uh, fellowship with the apostles, then you don't have fellowship with God. That's what John is saying here. That's a theme that we'll see throughout 1 John. A couple of examples. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The implication, if you have fellowship with these false prophets, then you don't have fellowship with the true God. Or, 1 John 4, 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. As we've mentioned, the book is polemical. It's written to expose and to confront this false teaching. It's responding to false teaching. So it sets up this stark contrast. You have two options. You can follow and have fellowship with these other teachers, with these false prophets who deny the incarnation, who distort the meaning of sin, who dilute the necessity of love, or you can follow and have fellowship with the apostles and thus have fellowship with the true triune 
Creator God. Those are the only two options for us. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice here the Trinitarian language of the text. It says fellowship with the Father and with His Son. 1 John is dripping with Trinitarianism. It's like a sponge, and if you were to wring it out, it would bleed, it would drip down. It's saturated with Trinitarian language that permeates the book. We'll, we'll, uh, occasionally, we'll stop and we'll actually stare at that and look at that and contemplate it throughout 1 John. Other times, we'll just simply glance over it and mention it. But I want you to notice it here. Notice there is no fellowship with the, the Father apart from the Son and vice versa. There's no estranged relationship. There's no strained relationship between the Father and the Son. Or, by implication, the Father and the Spirit, or the Son and the Spirit. To fellowship with one, to know one, to love one, is to know each of them. We'll see that clearly as we move through the book. Uh, chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were three distinct gods instead of one God who eternally exists as three persons, if Father, Son, and Spirit were three distinct gods, then you could have fellowship with one and not the other. You could love the Father, but not really care for the Son. Or love the Spirit, but not really care for the Father, or something like that. Kind of like you could serve Vishnu, but ignore Zeus. You could uh, serve Odin, but not really care for Allah. You could really love Gozer the Gozerian, but not really care about Zorp the lizard god with the volcano mouth or something like that. But the problem with that is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three distinct gods. They are one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. You cannot worship the Father apart from the Son and vice versa. So to know God is to know Him as Trinity. Again, we'll unravel that as we make our way through 1 John. I just want you to notice it for now as we're kind of laying the foundation here in the prologue. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When we started the book, I uh, mentioned that my son wasn't sleeping uh, really well. He has uh, colic or something going on. And so we're doing the five S's. I mentioned that uh, swaddle, sway, shush, all those kinds of things. Afterwards, in our uh, sermon debrief, Tim mentioned that I probably should have clarified that my son was only a few weeks old, which is a good point. Although I think it's really funny if you just assume that my son is 15 and I'm like swaddling him or something like that. I love the image of walking in on Carl Brower with his son Taylor, who's a teenager, and he's got him all swaddled up and he's shh or something like that. Anyway, as I tried uh, the five S's to soothe my newborn son, so John, as we talked about, has given four S's to kind of soothe and comfort these uh, children of his who are disturbed and discouraged by false teachers. And so he writes for at least four reasons. We talked about these a couple of weeks ago. One is sanctification. First John was written to prevent sin. Another is safety. First John was written to protect from false teaching. And then security. First John was written to provide assurance of salvation. And finally, what we see here in this text, satisfaction. First John was written to promote joy. So you have sanctification, prevent sin, uh, safety, protect from false teaching, security, provide assurance of salvation, and satisfaction to promote 
joy. What is joy? Not where is joy. That's down in my heart, how the song goes. What is joy? Let me give you four things that you need to know about joy, because joy is another one of these words of Christianese, which everyone uses, and yet most of us probably couldn't do a good job of explaining or defining it. So let me give you four things that you need to know about joy. The first one is that God commands joy. This isn't optional. It's not something that you can just simply chalk up to your personality. If you're like me, I've always kind of had a chronic bent towards melancholy. If I don't experience joy, I can't just blame that on my personality type. God commands desire and delight and rejoicing and joy. It's something that God commands. The second thing you need to know related to the first is that you were created for joy. One of the greatest truths for you to behold in Scripture is the idea that God created you for His glory and for your joy. And those two things are not at odds. Those two things are not contradictory. As, uh, as John Piper has written, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In other words, God doesn't condemn us for wanting joy. He commands it. Instead, we are critiqued for being satisfied with lesser pleasures. As Jeremiah 2 would say, we forsake the living waters and run to these broken cisterns that can hold no water. We, re we reject God who is the fount of living water. This inexhaustible, unfathomable fountain of living water. And we hewed out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you were created for joy. Third, joy is an outworking of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It isn't something we can simply conjure up on our own. God commands it, yes, but He also must provide it for us. It's a natural response of a supernatural grace. When the Spirit of God impresses the love of God upon the soul, the natural result is joy. And then lastly, joy is different from happiness. They overlap, but joy is deeper. Happiness ebbs and flows as circumstances change. It is nearly impossible for you to experience happiness when you get that terrible prognosis about your spouse or your kid. But even in that moment, you can still experience joy because joy is eschatological. What we mean by that is joy takes account of the future. It takes account of God's promises to us. The reality of resurrection, all of these good things that God has promised to us. Happiness is about the absence of suffering. Joy is about the presence of God. Let me say that again. Happiness is about the absence of suffering. Joy is about the presence of God and the promises of God. So the joy is the goal. It's the purpose of John's proclamation. It's the purpose of this letter. He says we have written these things so that our joy may be complete. Now I want you to notice the pronoun there, our. He says so that our joy may be complete. I might expect that to say instead your joy. I'm written, I've written these things so that your joy may be complete. In fact, a, a, a few of the early uh, manuscripts that we find actually have the word joy, uh, your instead of our, because that seems to make more sense on the surface. But I think there's something profound about the author's original use of the phrase or the pronoun our joy, pointing to the author's joy. Here's what I think that, uh, that John is getting at. Here's what I think is implied here. That joy is incomplete until it's expressed, until it's shared. 
Let me give you an example of this. In 2013, I happened to be in uh, England during uh, Wimbledon, and uh, I grew up playing tennis. I love tennis, and so uh, it was really exciting for me to be there because this was the year that Andy Murray was in competition. He is a, 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 a citizen of the UK, and he was in competition to win Wimbledon, which would have been a huge deal because no uh, British uh, male had won Wimbledon in 77 years. This British tournament had never been won, had not been won by a British male in 77 years. And so I wanted to watch the finals, but unfortunately we had tickets to a live production of The Lion King, so we went to that got out of the Lion King, and I literally ran as fast as I could to the nearest pub in order to watch the final 30 minutes of the match on, uh, on TV. And uh, the final game of the match was incredible. And uh, it was intense. It was back and forth. It was a nail-biter, all of these sorts of things. But Murray finally won, broke this 77-year drought, and the entire pub just erupted in celebration. In fact, this man that was next to me, a complete stranger, turned and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> now, why did he do that? I can assure you it was not prearranged. I was not asking for it or anything like that. The reason he did that is because it was this spontaneous, uh, overwhelming overflow of celebration. And the fact that he probably had a few too many pints or something like that. <laughs> Now imagine, if you will, that your favorite team has just won a championship on the last point. What do you do? What's your innate instinctual response? You stand, you scream, you give someone a high five, you give someone a hug, you kiss a stranger, whatever it is. You do something like that. What is your natural, instinctual, innate response whenever you get engaged or you find out you got that promotion or you find out you're finally pregnant after years of trying, what do you do? You call somebody, you text somebody, you email somebody, you post it on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Why is it that a child, whenever uh, a child wants to do something, they're always, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me. Why is that? Because there's something innate and instinctual about us that knows that joy is incomplete until others share in our joy with us. There's something about the nature of joy that says that it's almost instinctual. There's something about the nature of joy, the, the nature of delight, the nature of elation and gladness that it isn't complete until it's expressed and shared with others. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis recognized and expressed this truth. He said, or he wrote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoy enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley or unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. So John is writing this, not only for the joy of his readers, although that's certainly true, but for his own joy. After all, a parent's joy is deeply interwoven with his children's joy. And that's the posture that John writes. Throughout the book, we'll see John refer to the readers as his little children, his dear children, his beloved children. And so he writes not only for their joy, but for his own as well. This is why the best evangelism 
isn't compelled by guilt or obligation. As if you have sort of a, a, a quota of number of people that you have to share the gospel with each week. The best evangelism is, is simply the overflow of your love for Jesus Christ. The best employees aren't compelled by mere duty, but delight. The same goes with worship. In a few minutes, we're going to sing. And most of us will sing this morning, but there will be two types of singing in the congregation. Some of you will sing because it's the right thing to do. You'll just say, it's my duty. This is what Christians do when they go to church. They sing, and so I'm going to sing because I'm a Christian, and I'm going to do the right thing. And let me tell you this. If that's all that's there this morning, then do it. Begrudging obedience is better than actual disobedience. But still, my hope for you is that there would be something deeper. That for a number of us, that we would sing, not merely because it's the right thing to do, but because there is delight as we consider who Christ is and what He has done, because there is joy. That's my hope for our little church this morning. And indeed, every morning that we gather together, that we would be these type 2 worshipers, not merely type 1 worshipers who are doing it out of duty, but type 2 who are doing it out of a combination of both duty and delight, that we would be so deeply affected by the realities of redemption, of regeneration, of joy, of salvation, of justification, of eternal life, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy and love, indeed so deeply affected by the realities of the glories of the triune God, that our natural response would be to worship. So our text this morning kind of wraps up the prologue, the introduction to the book of 1 John, right? And, and over the next few weeks, we'll consider how faith is going to overflow into obedience and love. That's something we'll see over and over. But before we move on, before we get to these other implications of faith, as we consider morality and sanctification and service in the body and all of these sorts of things, I want to take a moment, if you will, to kind of make sure the concrete is set on this foundation that, uh, that John has laid here in the prologue by reminding us of a few things in the introduction that should cultivate this sort of spontaneous gratitude and joy which breeds worship. So six things to know really uh, quickly as we conclude. The first thing that you need to know that should produce worship in your heart is that God is triune. In the Godhead, there is unity, there is plurality, there is glory, and there is mystery to behold. Think of the way that you feel when you stare at the ocean or when you stare at the Rockies, or the Alps, or the Grand Canyon, or whatever it might be, the West Texas sky, you get a sense of the size and scope that's overwhelming. Such is God. There's glory to behold there, inexhaustible glory. The appropriate response is awe and wonder. The second thing, because God is transcendent, He has to reveal Himself if we are to behold Him. That was a big point of our text. Last week, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that audio. God has to reveal Himself if we are to behold Him. And because He is good and loving, He has done just that. He has revealed Himself to us. Which brings us to the third point, which is that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on flesh. He has been incarnated. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. Remaining God, He became man. And as we'll see in chapter 2, the reason that he did it 
is in order to save us from our sin, to be our propitiation, to be our substitutionary sacrifice. Fourth, the word of life incarnated has been inscripturated. The word of life incarnated has been inscripturated such that what you read in this little book that you call the Bible, what you read on your phone, app, or your iPad, or whatever it might be, what you read there is inspired, authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and trustworthy. We don't worship the Bible again, but neither do we worship God apart from it. Which means, number five, theology and doctrine are not dry academic pursuits. Theology and doctrine are about joy, eternal life, and hope. The false teaching that has polluted the church that John is writing to has somehow compromised the morality, the obedience, the love of the people. It's not harmless. It's a fatal poison which has polluted the well of the church and ultimately would destroy their fellowship with God Himself. And then lastly, we were created to glorify God and the chief means by which we do so is by finding Him to be all-sufficient, all-satisfying, glorious, and good. As an old catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Knowing these foundational truths, these six foundational truths that you kind of see set there in the prologue of 1 John will be absolutely essential as we work through the book over the next year. And even more so, they're essential for us this morning as we prepare our hearts to worship through communion and song. So let's pray as the men come forward and we prepare to take communion. Father, I thank You this morning for the opportunity that we have to dive into Your Word, that we have uh, to gather together this morning. Lord, it is not merely um, our responsibility, but it's also an opportunity for us to engage each other, to be engaged by Your Word, to see where we need to repent, to be convic convicted of apathy in our life, to be convicted of places where we are compromising or capitulating to culture, whatever it might be. And so I pray, Lord, as You continue to set the foundation of this book uh, for us, Lord, that You would use it to increase our faith, our obedience, and our love for Your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.